listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman, and today we're being joined. We have a special co-host, Andrew Bruff. He is my business partner in my syndication business, Crestworth Capital, and today we are interviewing Nick Simpson. He is a real estate developer, investor, and now syndicator. Nick, welcome to the show. Hi, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Nick, let's get things kicked off. Can you tell us kind of how you got involved in real estate? Just walk us through your journey. Sure. So, early on, I started out my business career cutting grass when I was young to pay for college. So, I was in college and I was really used to the go, go, go. And I actually found my college courses to be kind of slow. So, I picked up Rich Dad, Poor Dad, just like a lot of other <laughs> real estate investors have. And I think I read it in the day and it was just eye opening. That was in freshman year. And by the end of sophomore year, I had the first two under my belt and it was in the middle of the recession. The first deal, I think it was maybe 35,000 to purchase it and 30,000 to renovate it in sweat equity. And we had it rented out the following year to some college students. So that was, that was the beginning and it's grown from there. Awesome. So yeah, we hear that story so often about Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I also read it in a day. Up to that point, I'd never been able to sit still and actually read a book cover to cover. But at the time, I was waking up at five every morning to read for an hour before my day job. And when I started Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I took the rest of the day off. I didn't even go to work that day. And I I just read all day and finished it by the evening. But can you kind of take a step back a second? You said you bought a $35,000 house in college. How did you go about getting your hands on $35,000? Because I couldn't get my hands on on $3,500 in college. Sure. So I, I had a little bit of extra cash from the, the lawns that I was cutting. I, I decided to go through college in three years because I was paying for it. And that fourth year, I took that extra cash as a down payment and then just went to the bank with the suit and tie on. I think I biked there, actually. <laughs> uh, I didn't have a car at the time. Yeah. So like show up, just hid the bike around back, walked in and the loan officer you know, it was $70,000, the total deal. So they asked for some typical questions and we got to work and it was just pure determination to get it done. And I got in there and I was painting the walls and doing the trim. And, you know, I got lucky with some good contractors up front, but definitely learned a lot on the first one. So yeah, it was just a typical deal. Nick, where did you go to college? Salisbury University in Maryland. Maryland. Okay, cool. And do you still live in Maryland today? I do. Yeah, I'm actually still in Salisbury and I've been working in the commercial and residential real estate here for the past eight years. So right now we've got an 89 unit project that's going on in downtown Salisbury. Downtown Salisbury is seeing a lot of revitalization right now and we've been a big part of that for for the past five years or so. Awesome. So what exactly does the transition look like from your, first of all, what did you go to college for? I went for business management Business management. and I think I learned more from the business competitions that I did, Sure, but it let me grow up a little bit, but I felt like I was getting more out of my actual doing rather than, than the classroom. Yeah, so. that's, that's typically the case. So how did you transition from buying the first rental in college to, to what you're doing today? I imagine there's, there's quite a long story there in between. Sure. Yeah. Funny mistakes too. The first one, I remember sitting there working on the house. And I'm like, geez, if I can just get maybe two of these things, maybe three of these things by you know, 30 or something, you know, I'd be 
doing all right, but I just couldn't figure it out. What I didn't realize is it, it starts to be the compounding effect is a lot stronger than, than you realize. It's really the contacts, I think, that move it faster than anything rather than the money itself. And having the bankers' phone numbers and the investors start to come kind of organically because you kind of tell people about what you're doing. And uh, slowly but surely, people want to get in on deals with you. And I think it was really kind of just a organic effort in the beginning and just you know, my excitement was kind of coming through to people. That was really early on. And then I started to realize I needed to move a little bit faster. So we got into commercial and we started a construction company to, to help with the renovations. And that helped spur on a, a larger development. We worked on, on several downtown properties at the time. It was pretty much just a recessionary type feel in downtown. And there was a lot of properties that were really distressed and needed a ton of work. So we were doing full rehabs of these buildings and moving a lot of businesses in. At the time I was working with another real estate agent who was focused on leasing everything and I was working on the construction side. So we kind of split the roles and worked on growing the, the downtown portfolio. But I started to realize we needed a lot more property management at that point because there was just too many units to take care of. So that's when I really started to sell off some of the smaller assets and focus on the larger the larger assets that can have larger property managers in place that are really sophisticated and know what they're doing. So it's been eight years that I've been doing it and there's a lot of hard work that goes into it. There's no short short path in real estate, that's for sure. So did you ever have a W-2 job or have you pretty much been doing this since day one? Cutting grass to buying buildings. I think my only W-2 job was... I worked at the golf course. I wanted some free golf in, in, uh, in high school. That was it. Other than that, I, I'd just always been entrepreneurial. And I got out and I, at college and I tried to start a little like tech company on the side. I was really chasing money. It's like that dream. I think everybody wants to start an app and make the money really quick. But it, it's not my passion. I had no interest in learning about it and doing the, the hard work or even you know picking up a book and reading about it. And after a while, I was like, what am I doing? I, I already have this real estate thing going on the side. I need to, I need to focus on that full time. So um, without the W-2 money coming in, how did you fund those earlier deals? Was it partnerships? Did you have investors from day one? Walk us kind of through how, how you made it happen. Sure. So on the first, the very first deal, I called my dad. I said, hey, can you sign the note? Just sign the note. Don't, you don't need to bring cash. Just sign the note and make sure the bank can go through. That was deal one. Then I had a little bit of organic cash flow. Then we started building houses pretty early on and we were taking the money we were making from all of the rentals and all of the houses and really rolling them into the next property. And, you know, talk about being tight. I mean, I was sleeping on the floor of some of these new constructions just to, to save on not having rent around here, or I was crashing on a friend's house, or at a friend's house just to make sure I was saving every single penny I could. I mean, I, I was tight early, early on. I mean, I didn't go on vacation. I didn't do anything. I was just really, really trying to roll all the money into the next deal. Eventually, that kind of got me into some employees and the employees can really start to move things along a little faster. I got myself my first apartment, probably about, I don't know, 40 years in. That was, that was a big deal. It was not a nice apartment, but it was just a roof over my head. But then the commercial properties really started to fund the cash flow coming from those really started to fund the acquisitions of, of additional deals. We got a little bit lucky. I think there was some 
some properties that we acquired without any money down because the banks were really trying to get rid of them and they're about to go into foreclosure. And that was kind of leveraging our relationships, but that didn't happen too often. But there's a bunch of different ways that we were just, if we were under financing, you know, you'd go to somebody and say, hey, would you finance it? And we could try to bring investors in. We would do anything and everything to get our hands on another piece of real estate. And that worked out sometimes really well and other times it, it didn't. But the times that you, that you mess up, I think you learn more than times where everything goes perfectly. So tell us a little bit more about your, you keep saying we, and, and you'd mentioned you'd worked with a real estate agent. Can you kind of tell us about that partnership relationship and, and how that evolved? And Sure. Early on, I, I was looking for an agent just to show me deals. And I think the first agent I met, she took me to a property and she's like, you know, this one, once you pay it off in 30 years, you'll make money. I was like, you don't understand what I'm looking for. And so it's like, all right, forget this. I'm going to go find somebody else. And I think I had to go to two or three more. I finally found this one guy, Brett, who found a deal that he understood exactly what I was looking for. He was like, yeah, this one's it's really in a really distressed state. There's kind of mold all over the walls and stuff. You know, it was really not in good shape, and, but he saw the vision. So him and I started working together and well, we're not doing everything together anymore. We have different I think, priorities as far as like work-life balance. I definitely appreciate everything we were able to accomplish together in, in the beginning. And as I continue to grow, some of my new partners, it, you know, it's pretty amazing who you can meet in the real estate world. One of my partners on the deal right now is the chief operating officer at Wells Fargo Multifamily Capital. He, oversees $15 billion a year in, in loans. So it's pretty incredible who you can meet in this business as you start to grow. So it's definitely not something I would recommend doing alone. So you mentioned that you started a construction company. Did you have any background in construction or where did that come from? I guess the only real construction background I had would be just from the, the kind of the grass cutting, you know, maybe somebody needed something small done like painting or whatever but I really was just watching the contractors on the first house and had an intense curiosity for what they were doing I you know they were putting in cabinets and I was like I, that, that doesn't look too hard I can figure that out and slowly but surely I learned as we were renovating the first I don't know five or six properties but I felt like we were overpaying and we weren't necessarily the top priority for the contractors as far as their schedules were concerned so eventually we, we started a, a construction company and started building other people's homes just to, some, to make some side income to fund the properties. I have since shut that construction company down because I've decided to focus on larger deals and let the larger construction companies be the CMs for the project. And I definitely don't regret that though because I have a, a lot of experience with architects and have a lot of contacts in the construction industry. So when I get pricing for the development project that we're working on now, it's, I still have a really good idea whether or not we're getting jerked around. And it's, it's nice to know the numbers on that side. I think a lot of people still shy away from development because it's, it's just an unknown for them where I think we have that experience. It, it helps. So how do you go about structuring a development deal? That's a big process. And <laughs> I, I like to balance a portfolio 50-50. 50% I like to kind of dream and do those really big impactful projects like the one we're working on now. And the other half I like to kind of just work on repositioning assets and those be the cash flow assets. But as far as as far as development, really it's whatever you dream up. So in the beginning of this project, I wanted to build the tallest building in the area. I wanted to build 
a high-rise building in downtown to really draw people. I wanted to put 300 plus people in downtown. I wanted to bring you know more units to our rapidly revitalizing historic downtown Main Street. So I acquired the one building that was adjacent to the parking garage, and that immediately I was like, "Oh, let's take a walking bridge from the building into the parking garage," and that would cover all the parking that we need. And one thing leads to next to kind of let your imagination run for a little while. And you work with the architects and you put together some basic sketches and you work on getting your zoning. And that can take a long time. I and mean, we went through 24, 25 approvals on this last project. And you got to definitely play the political game a little bit. You got to make sure people agree with your, your vision. And it can take a long time. For, and for instance, this project, I think we probably have uh, two and a half years in zoning and architectural approvals and getting all the construction work. And we've really laid a lot of cash out. I think probably only neighborhood about five and a half million before we've even been able to put a shovel fully on the ground to just acquire all three properties to get the, you know, the site completely approved. And, and we've started some demo currently, but it's a big process to do a full on development if you're, if you're really eager to do it. But you know, it's the risk reward thing. Bigger risk, bigger reward. So what does the funding structure look like for something like that? I, I imagine you didn't outlay five and a half million of your own capital. Like what type of loans do you get to that? How much do you put down? Where were you sourcing the equity for the down payment? Can you kind sure. of elaborate a little bit on that? Well, and I'm asking because we've never had a developer on our program before. We, we have so many syndicators that just reposition value-add multifamilies. So we're very familiar with that process, but I've, I've never had anyone with this type of project on the show. So I'm sure our listeners would love to hear the details. Sure. So we started with one of the three properties. There was, we bought three adjacent properties and we bought it very similar to a, to a standard bank loan but we did it with owner financing. So I used a 1031. I sold one of my old, older properties and I just transferred the money into that one building. I think we put 150,000 down and he financed the remaining 650, give or take. And that was property one done, you know, check the box. And then pretty much it repeated itself on the other three properties. I think we used a local bank for one of them. And then I think we used I think hard we used we actually did use a hard money lender on on one of the others. So it was across the board just a standard bank deal, owner financing, and then the one hard money deal. And eventually we were able to refinance all of that to our construction lender. So it's all under one lender now. And I think we have about 2.4 million in actual equity into the deal between me and some partners at this point. And then the remaining three million or so is is a loan. Is your construction and, lender uh, a bank? or? Yeah, so we're using a First Trust Bank, actually, to give them a little plug. Uh, I think they're the bank of the Philadelphia Eagles now. Uh, really, <laughs> really nice guys. And they, we got a little delayed with coronavirus. We decided, since it's student housing, hey, you know, we should pump brakes here. We don't know if the construction's going to be shut down. It was just a lot, of, uh, a lot of uncertainty back there in March. So decided to pump the brakes. We're going to pick back up here in December. We're actually in the process of restructuring the equity now and getting going. But the whole project will be completed in August of 2022. We'll have first trust through the first 24 months of the of the deal, interest only, and then we'll have three years of regular amortizing payments, and then we'll go out to a to a permanent lender. 
What's your total cost on that project? It'll be about 34 or five. So it'd be 300 beds, 86 units, and we'll have one rooftop cafe. So it'll be a, a fun project to get done. Andrew comes to us from the banking world. That's why he gets in the more intricate details of the, the financing. That was definitely, you know, we're, we're an opportunity zone. So it was an opportunity zone deal. So by nature, it's a bit of a tertiary market. And attracting capital to tertiary markets is not the easiest thing. I mean, it, it takes a little bit of work. You got to show people that there's real returns, that there, you know, this is not. I think that's probably why we have had to put so much of our own capital into the deal before we were able to attract it and you know, really show people, hey, we believe what we're doing. You know, this is where the, the local experts. It takes a lot of bankers to come and see the project. I think that's probably the biggest lesson learned is it's been hard to sell anybody on anything unless they see it. They've got to come do the site visit. And that's definitely been more tough with uh, the coronavirus, but when they come here, they see it, they walk around, they can ask the questions, they can see your other projects. That probably was the biggest eye-opening thing for me. I, going, you know, going forward on new projects, we'll just call bankers and ask them, you know, ask them to go meet me at the project, do the dinner thing. And, and it's great to see the project and see what's around there be able to understand what your, your plans are with it. It definitely helps. And they get to know you, put a face to the deal maker and really get to build those relationships and this will be there for a long time. So Nick, what's next for you? Yeah, so we'll be finishing up this project. We're raising the last, well, we're restructuring the last eight and a half million right now of equity. And then once we're off and running with the construction in, later, in late December, I'll be focusing on finishing this project and then working on a couple different multifamily projects that have my eyes on in the Maryland market. Okay, great. So are you developing these multifamily projects or are you just buying some stuff to reposition? Yeah, so this time it'll be the reposition. That's the other 50% I'll focus on. I like to keep that balance of the ones that you're repositioning, I think are a little bit easier to take down. They're certainly not that two and a half year lead time it's not easy to identify reposition properties and there's a lot more bidding and you know, you're going against other people who are watching those properties. But I, I still think it's, it's a much faster and, and safer play than the development deal. And I want to take a couple of those down before we, we tackle our next development. Those going to be multifamily or are they going to be all multifamily? I, I like the commercial world. I have a couple of commercial assets, but the, length of time it takes to lease these properties and all the uncertainty with retail and what, what are people doing with the office space right now? Are they still going to work? I, I, it's just not for me. I, you know, there's other people who might want to take on those. I guess they could be seen as like a, a real value play right now, but I, that's, it's just not my lane. On the topic of the global transformation that we kind of seem to be going through that's affecting, like you just mentioned, retail and the office space. Do you have any any feelings or thoughts about how that might affect student housing? I know a lot of the universities out there are still shut down due to coronavirus and other universities, you know, are saying even after the coronavirus, they'll probably move to a more remote, less classrooms, more more remote online learning environment. As far as student housing is concerned, that's something we've watched very closely. And the go away to college, I think, is so ingrained in, in our society that I don't think the students are really going to shy away from that. 
we had a couple of student housing, like off-campus housing complex that did not shut down during the full COVID incident. And there was 200, 300 person parties going on. I mean, they just did not care. So I think they're going to come back to campus and you're kind of seeing that right now at some of those campuses across the country. I think the students really just want that experience, that on-campus, in-person experience that they've dreamed about their entire life. So I don't, I don't necessarily think that long-term that'll be something that'll change. What I do think will change is the type of, of construction. So you're probably going to see a lot more bed-to-bath ratio. So you're going to see like new construction of student housing projects that all have a one-to-one bed-bath ratio. You probably won't see a lot of properties where two and three students are sharing a room anymore that they'll probably not finance that stuff right now so like on our project we have all of ours with our bed to bath you know one-to-one ratio and i think a lot of the colleges that are just overpriced those 50 60 70 a year colleges are probably i could see i'm going out of favor I, it's hard to tell but i think the state-run colleges just across the nation that are much more affordable i think those are probably going to stand a little bit better if you're going forward and as we see all the students across the nation kind of waking up to the student debt issue i don't know if i'd want to have a whole ton of assets at, at really expensive colleges but we'll have to see tell us about the type of assets you're looking for with multifamily. what what are you trying to reposition you, you said you're in your home state how close to the big cities kind of elaborate about what your criteria is for us sure anybody familiar with uh, maryland knows that Salisbury, Maryland is not the most urban center of, of the state. So anything, anything that we're looking at is probably going to be on the other side of the bridge, which is outside of the D.C., Baltimore markets. And we're looking for assets that are probably in the neighborhood of about 30 years old. We're going to want the opportunity to, to really do a, a, large, a large amount of construction and make them much nicer. We definitely like using our construction background to to make those units a little bit nicer than our competition. We definitely are focused on the green aspect of things. If there's any type of product, you know, if there's any type of multifamily that we could take off the grid, we'd really like to, to get one of those under our belt soon. Kind of do like a net zero reposition where cut the power company out of the deal and put the solar panels in and really try to market type of product i think it would really differentiate something and i'd like to see a lot more people start doing that because i think it'll really give people peace of mind especially like in a COVID. if you if you went to your tenants and said hey you don't have an electric bill right now that would be a, a pretty good value proposition so we're looking at all sorts of different aspects to try to get a little bit of leg up because it, it is a competitive competitive market absolutely we've definitely experienced that hadn't we andrew <laughs> All right. <laughs> so I think everybody works well together. I, you know, like shows like this, we all like to get together, but you know, there's plenty of deals to go around. I'm not saying that, but there's a lot of people with eyes on deals nowadays. So. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Great. So low. That's part of it too. So what advice do you have for anybody out there looking to get started? I think some of the best advice I got early on was just pull the trigger. I've, was sitting in this this guy's office. He had like 400 rentals. I didn't have a single one. It's like, I'm going to try to buy my first one. And he goes, what are you waiting for? Just pull the trigger. Just do it. And I think it just gave me the, the motivation to just 
to stop being so scared. I mean, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? I mean, yeah, yeah. I didn't have any money then. <laughs> I didn't, if, if it didn't <laughs> you work didn't out, have I anything have to lose. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> That's the absolute best advice I can think of. And, and it's the advice I give everybody who, who, who's looking to get started and calls me. So real quick, we're coming up on the time. I wanted to hop into our radio round just to let our listeners get to know you a little bit better. First question is, what is your favorite book? Uh, Am I Being Too Subtle Right Now by Sam Zell. That's a great book. I really like Rich Dad Poor Dad, but if you guys haven't read uh, Sam Zell's Am I Being Too Subtle, he is a really, really good businessman, and I, I really enjoyed it. Well, we'll go with Am I Being Too Subtle because we've had about 43 Rich Dad Poor Dad answers on that question. <laughs> uh, everybody, everybody's got to check out Sam Zell. He's the man. Uh, awesome. I'll definitely look into it. What's your favorite quote? Money can't buy you happiness, but it sure is a good down payment. Or it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. One of those two. Nice. <laughs> 10 years. That's right. I like that. <laughs> so what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? You know, I, I probably not the best person to, at, to ask on the work-life balance for right now, but when I do get the chance, I like to, to uh, hang out with friends and you know, do a little bit of golf when I have a chance. I can usually get that in with the bankers. Every once in a while, I can get them to pay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Go. laughs> so. So uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you or find out more about you? Sure. I, you can always reach me through email at nick at simpsonbuilding.com or check out our website at simpsonbuilding.com. And I'm very responsive to any messages. If you want to give me a ring, that's 410-627-4592. Awesome. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you kind of digging in on the development stuff. And I uh, look forward to being out there and competing with you over deals in the future. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us and helping co-host with us. And until next time, we'll be following you. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing.